Chapter Twenty Five of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. July two thousand seven. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty five. England under Richard the Third. King Richard the Third was up betimes in the morning and went to Westminster Hall. In the hall was a marble seat upon which he sat himself down between two great noblemen and told the people that he began the new reign in that place because the first duty of a sovereign was to administer the laws equally to all and to maintain justice. He then mounted his horse and rode back to the city, where he was received by the clergy and the crowd as if he really had a right to the throne and really were a just man. The clergy and the crowd must have been rather ashamed of themselves in secret, I think, for being such poor spirited knaves. The new king and his queen were soon crowned with a great deal of show and noise, which the people liked very much, and then the king set forth on a royal progress through his dominions. He was crowned a second time at York, in order that the people might have show and noise enough, and wherever he went he was received with shouts of rejoicing from a good many people of strong lungs who were paid to strain their throats in crying, God save King Richard. The plan was so successful that I am told it has been imitated since by other usurpers in other progresses through other dominions. While he was on this journey, King Richard stayed a week at Warwick, and from Warwick he sent instructions home for one of the wickedest murders that ever was done, the murder of the two young princes, his nephews, who were shut up in the Tower of London. Sir Robert Brackenbury was at that time governor of the Tower. To him, by the hands of a messenger named John Green, did King Richard send a letter, ordering him by some means to put the two young princes to death. But Sir Robert, I hope because he had children of his own, and loved them, sent John Green back again, riding and spurring along the dusty roads, with the answer that he could not do so horrible a piece of work. The king, having frowningly considered a little, called to him Sir James Tyrrell, his master of the horse, and to him gave authority to take command of the tower whenever he would, for twenty-four hours, and to keep all the keys of the tower during that space of time. Tyrrell, well knowing what was wanted, looked about him for two hardened ruffians, and chose John Dighton, one of his own grooms, and Miles Forrest, who was a murderer by trade. Having secured these two assistants, he went, upon a day in August, to the tower, showed his authority from the king, took the command for four and twenty hours, and obtained possession of the keys. And when the black knight came he went creeping, creeping, like a guilty villain as he was, up the dark, stone-winding stairs, and along the dark stone passages, until he came to the door of the room where the two young princes, having said their prayers, lay fast asleep, clasped in each other's arms. 
and while he watched and listened at the door, he sent in those evil demons, John Dighton and Miles Forrest, who smothered the two princes with the bed and pillows, and carried their bodies down the stairs, and buried them under a great heap of stones at the staircase foot. And when the day came, he gave up the command of the tower, and restored the keys, and hurried away without once looking behind him, and Sir Robert Brackenbury went with fear and sadness to the prince's room, and found the princes gone for ever. You know through all this history how true it is that traitors are never true, and you will not be surprised to learn that the Duke of Buckingham soon turned against King Richard, and joined a great conspiracy that was formed to dethrone him, and to place the crown upon its rightful owner's head. Richard had meant to keep the murder secret, but when he heard through his spies that this conspiracy existed, and that many lords and gentlemen drank in secret to the house of the two young princes in the tower, he made it known that they were dead. The conspirators, though thwarted for a moment, soon resolved to set up for the crown against the murderous Richard, Henry, Earl of Richmond, grandson of Catherine, that widow of Henry V, who married Owen Tudor. And as Henry was of the house of Lancaster, they proposed that he should marry the Princess Elizabeth, the eldest daughter of the late king, now the heiress of the house of York, and thus, by uniting the rival families, put an end to the fatal wars of the red and white roses. All being settled, a time was appointed for Henry to come over from Brittany, and for a great rising against Richard to take place in several parts of England at the same hour. On a certain day, therefore, in October, the revolt took place, but unsuccessfully. Richard was prepared, Henry was driven back at sea by a storm, his followers in England were dispersed, and the Duke of Buckingham was taken, and at once beheaded in the marketplace at Salisbury. The time of his success was a good time, Richard thought, for summoning a Parliament and getting some money. So a Parliament was called, and it flattered and fawned upon him as much as he could possibly desire, and declared him to be the rightful King of England, and his only son Edward, then eleven years of age, the next heir to the throne. Richard knew full well that let the Parliament say what it would, the Princess Elizabeth was remembered by people as the heiress of the House of York, and having accurate information besides of its being designed by the conspirators to marry her to Henry of Richmond, he felt that it would much strengthen him and weaken them to be beforehand with them and marry her to his son. With this view he went to the sanctuary at Westminster, where the late king's widow and her daughter still were, and besought them to come to court, where, he swore by anything and everything, they should be safely and honorably entertained. They came accordingly, but had scarcely been at court a month, when his son died suddenly, or was poisoned, and his plan was crushed to pieces." In this extremity, King Richard, always active, thought, I must make another plan. And he made the plan of marrying the Princess Elizabeth himself, although she was his niece. There was one difficulty in the way. His wife, the Queen Anne, was alive. But he knew, remembering his nephews, how to remove that obstacle, and he made love to the Princess Elizabeth, 
telling her he felt perfectly confident that the Queen would die in February. The Princess was not a very scrupulous young lady, for, instead of rejecting the murderer of her brothers with scorn and hatred, she openly declared she loved him dearly. And, when February came and the Queen did not die, she expressed her impatient opinion that she was too long about it. However, King Richard was not so far out in his prediction, but that she died in March, he took good care of that, and then this precious pair hoped to be married. But they were disappointed, for the idea of such a marriage was so unpopular in the country that the King's chief counsellors, Ratcliffe and Catesby, would by no means undertake to propose it, and the King was even obliged to declare in public that he had never thought of such a thing. He was, by this time, dreaded and hated by all classes of his subjects. His nobles deserted every day to Henry's side. He dared not call another Parliament, lest his crimes should be denounced there. And for want of money he was obliged to get benevolences from the citizens, which exasperated them all against him. It was said, too, that being stricken by his conscience, he dreamed frightful dreams, and started up in the night-time, wild with terror and remorse. Active to the last, through all this, he issued vigorous proclamations against Henry of Richmond and all his followers when he heard that they were coming against him with a fleet from France, and took the field as fierce and savage as a wild boar, the animal represented on his shield. Henry of Richmond landed with six thousand men at Milford Haven, and came on against King Richard, then encamped at Leicester, with an army twice as great, through North Wales. On Bosworth Field the two armies met, and Richard, looking along Henry's ranks, and seeing them crowded with the English nobles who had abandoned him, turned pale when he beheld the powerful Lord Stanley and his son, whom he had tried hard to retain among them. But he was as brave as he was wicked, and plunged into the thickest of the fight. He was riding hither and thither, laying about him in all directions, when he observed the Earl of Northumberland, one of his few great allies, to stand inactive, and the main body of his troops to hesitate. At the same moment his desperate glance caught Henry of Richmond among a little group of his knights. Riding hard at him, and crying, Treason! he killed his standard-bearer, fiercely unhorsed another gentleman, and aimed a powerful stroke at Henry himself, to cut him down. But Sir William Stanley parried it as it fell, and before Richard could raise his arm again, he was borne down in a press of numbers, unhorsed, and killed. Lord Stanley picked up the crown, all bruised and trampled and stained with blood, and put it upon Richmond's head, amid loud and rejoicing cries of Long Live King Henry. That night a horse was led up to the church of the Grey Friars at Leicester, across whose back was tied, like some worthless sack, a naked body brought there for burial. It was the body of the last of the Plantagenet line, King Richard III, usurper and murderer, slain at the Battle of Bosworth Field, in the thirty-second year of his age, after a reign of two years. End of chapter 25